Want to see an out-of-this-world true detective story? Well, sharpen your wits and hop on your magic carpet. You've got one, you know. Your imagination. Phantom invaders from outer space. Master keys to nuclear magic. Adventure, discovery, the greatest 50 years in the history of mankind. But how do we package all that into a show? It's very simple. We ask the magic screen. Boing. Come on, magic screen, come up with something. In the old horror films, you always had to have a highly visible monster. You had King Kong, you had Dracula, you had the Wolfman. Today, the monster has come closer, as close as he can ever come. Because although in his visible form, he's a standard horror monster, he can work invisibly, possessing those you trust most, your friends, your children, even you. The, um, there we are. Mm. The point is that this is not a, a monster, it is, it is not an animal, it is a disciple um, of, of the demon Asmodeus who we've seen metamorphize into this type of thing a bit at a time and now it's becoming trapped in the symbol of, its animal, of his animalistic urges. Just as we, I think just as we, almost as we uh, need uh, a, a, a worship of, of good and decent things, we... Uh, I used to say when there was all the anti-communist hysteria going around, I really longed for the devil to come back. We need an enemy to, uh, to fight. Now hear this, listener. I'm Tim. I'm Shruti. Boing! And you're listening to Music for Films, the underground film podcast. And this is part two of our show about the wild world of bat women, where uh, we call this format for the programme Box Set, because, I don't know, Shruti, maybe you'd like a kind of alternative DVD commentary sure, for, for some films. Yeah. Some films that haven't got a DVD commentary. Yeah. So we had um, an hour and 20 minute conversation where we covered many issues we did didn't we in part one and i'm assuming that people will not actually listen to that first part but there's some fun music in it so. well there's some fun music in this one do you know what the music bed we're listening to is apart from it being the batman theme obviously no i don't it's the revengers Ooh. i'll probably leave the music bed playing for a bit it eventually kind of turns into into woolly bully a woolly bully a woolly bully. What is a woolly bully? It's kind of one of the one of the uh, eternal mysteries of uh, garage rock, and the music in part one uh, was some some lovely all girl garage bands, and I picked some more for this one. I thought we weren't going to have as many music breaks in this one, but uh, some people have been quite nice about the music in in part one. Oh, we must give the public what it demands. So. I think so. Yeah, although. Before we actually get into the films, and while we're talking about music, I have noticed that my my reason for doing these programmes, which was quite mercenary really, is we're sort of timing these discussions about these two films, The Wild World of Batwoman 
and I'll let you pronounce the Mexican Batwoman title. Ah, La Mujer Murciélago? Sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. I'll take your word for it. The Mexican Batwoman film. Uh, is that the Ruby Rose Batwoman TV show has started. But I found actually if you do something and kind of do hashtag Batwoman, you can't get any listeners that way. Oh, well, it's nice to make something... That's not quite spooky, but uh, these shows do have a bit of a Halloween-y vibe to them. Yeah, there's so. a kind of Halloween-y vibe. There's a kind of uh, girl power yeah. type of Me Too vibe. There's a garage rock, sight rock vibe. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, it's a good excuse for us to watch some interesting, fairly obscure films. There's always a joker in the and Joker's uh, obviously That's in, true. Yes. is out and obviously likely to get an Oscar. Yeah. Have, you, have you read any of the um, the kind of the, the pushback from Jared Leto about Joker? No, I haven't. Well, Jared Leto doesn't seem very ha- wasn't happy with the um, the current Joker movie uh, because he obviously thought you know his Joker in Suicide Squad was going to be the main Joker. Remember all that universal positive acclaim that Suicide Squad got? But it's a, there's a Neither sequel. Neither do I. There's a sequel coming out, but it's... Why? Because it, I mean, I, because... Another sequel no one asked for, sure. Would I? Oh, would I? This is one of the aspects of these two rip-off movies, which is quite interesting. That So the, the backstory of the, the two Batwomen films we're talking about which we talked a lot more about in part one is the Batman serials from the 40s were re-released in I think 64, 65 in America as a theatrical feature and did quite well so television thought well let's bring Batman back and there was a film that was shot back to back with Adam West and Burt Warden at the end of shooting the first series of Batman the television series as a way of promoting the TV show. And the movie did very well as well. So then you had various people doing various rip-offs. It's interesting to think about some of the movies that have ripped that Adam West 66 Batman film off uh, that we're not talking about. So one of them is there's a Turkish Batgirl movie, a Yisselcham movie. Oh, just explain to us what Yisselcham is, Shruti. Well, I'm not the expert on... Yeshul That's Chen. So, That's our friend Chen yes, Pyre. Yeah. So uh, we highly recommend his documentary uh, remix, remake, ripoff. AKA Motor. AKA Motor by the Turkish filmmaker Chen Kaya. Uh, Turkish German, because he lives in Berlin. Doesn't That's he? right. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, Yeshul Chen is the name of a street in Istanbul, if I'm not mistaken, and. Um, it was an industry which was renowned for making uh, several remakes of mainstream Hollywood films, mainly in the 70s and 80s. Um, so they're often cra- characterized by very uh, distinct visual style, uh, but the narratives would often be very familiar to anyone who watched mainstream Hollywood blockbusters. Because they just rip off. Yeah. Things like there's a, there's a Yisrochan Wizard of Oz. Yep. There's a Yisrochan Spider Man, Star Wars. Star Wars. Yisrochan yep. Spider Man, where he's evil Spider Man. 
Uh, there's a Yusuf Cham Captain America where Captain America teams up with El Santo. Yes. Which kind of links with Mexican Batwoman because she's a lucha libra, uh, right. a woman wrestler, whereas El Santo is a male wrestler. And of course, they reuse the music as well. They would just record straight off the LPs of the isolated scores because you could get those in the 70s, of course. Uh, we were watching a bit of Turkish Batman from 1973, which uses John Barry's lovely theme from On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Secret Service that re- was lovely. reused in uh, Turkish Batman 1973. And you've just showed me the poster for Turkish Batgirl. Turkish Batgirl, which is quite raunchy, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, because we're on the podcast, we can talk about things in a slightly more frank way than we could when we were on sure. the radio. Uh, uh, nipple count. Uh, th- there's two of them. At least. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that's quite interesting about these Batwoman films is that the publicity for them is deliberately quite suggestive or quite raunchy. That Batman is, is it safe to say, quite a sexy, sexy guy? Oh, yeah. Sexy character? I think more than any other superhero, he's the one who's kind of most easily eroticised because he's he's a bat, you know, kind of hangs around but, at night. Yeah, also very mysterious. So, you know, you combine that with... Bit of an enigma. Combine that with a woman Ooh. dressing up, masks, Ooh. isn't it? Sure. <laughs> so yes, Turkish Batman, and it's uh, you can find it on archive.org. I'll put a link up when I do the, you know, the blog part of this show. Very interesting camera work in Turkish Batman. Amazing kind of long point of view shot going through a house where you just see it from the guy's point of view, and he gets in a lift and goes up a lift shaft and. Walks along a corridor. And quite innovative, actually, in a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah, and because it's uh, black and white, the the uh, imagery is quite striking. Has really has quite a gothic feel to it. Appropriately, for that matter. Yeah. We looked at that, but that's Batman. Uh, couldn't find the the Turkish Batgirl. Maybe I can find that. We can do a kind of follow-up and yeah. talk about that. So uh, last time we kind of covered some issues, which we won't go back over. But can I summarise? Yes, I, I hope you would. Well, I think if... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what we were talking about last time and kind of the discussion in a nutshell was that rip-off movies are kind of bait-and-switch. So you have a successful movie in this case the Adam West Batman film from 66 you do a rip off of it because you haven't got the copyrights of the characters you do Batwoman which is kind of obvious spin on Batman but the question then with the exploitation uh, film is what what's the switch and with these two films I think it's interesting that you have kind of two different approaches by two different exploitation film directors in two different countries two different markets America and Mexico 
which is quite good to compare those two because obviously they've got a lot dissimilar but they've got things in common as well. Something they have in common is what happened with comic books and society and censorship in the 50s and we talked about this last time that uh, there was this moral panic about comic books that they were influencing young people in a, a bad way that was causing juvenile delinquency particularly horror comics and you had a couple of things happening as a direct result of that one was the introduction of comic books code another was although horror icons Dracula the Wolfman, King Kong, were becoming more popular in the 50s around the time of this moral panic because of the shock theatre package of old horror movies that were now being licensed to syndicated television in America. And then you had Forrest Jackman's famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, which is kind of feeding off the popularity of all these old horror icons, but they've kind of been updated, rejuvenated. And you had kind of new... You often had these... Uh, American exploitation films that were cashing in on the popularity of 30s and 40s monster movies but in the 50s like I was a teenage werewolf well the interesting thing for me is the Mexican film really doesn't feel like an exploitation film mm. in the sense that when you um, think of terms like exploitation film you we often conjure up um, the idea of a film that's made with a very low budget with maybe questionable production values um, and again the bait and switch element where uh, the poster of a film promises a lot more sex and gore um, and the, then the film itself turns out to be quite tame um, largely because there isn't enough budget to put in a lot of gore or special effects and things like that. But the Mexican Batwoman film just felt like a mainstream film, has very high production values. Comparatively speaking, yeah. yeah. And uh, compared to a lot of exploitation films like, I don't know, Mano's Hands Hands of Fate, for example, um, it's really well made. And also I think the film is very successful in how it sort of transposes the personality traits that we associate with Bruce Wayne. You know, he's a debonair, rich person with time and money. The Mexican Batwoman is much the same. So in that sense, it doesn't feel like an exploitation film to me at all. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that one of the things that's being exploited is something that's not really in the kind of Batman world which is Monsters the Mexican movie as we'll go on to talk about when we watch the movies uh, has got a pretty good gill man you can almost kind of think of the the rubber suit monster in Mexican Batwoman is kind of like a grandfather of the gill man in, in The Shape of Water Yeah, and of course the, the the monsters that you weren't seeing in comic books but you were seeing on television and in magazines in the 50s in America were were hugely popular still in all forms of popular entertainment in Mexico. And you still had, you know, not just Dracula and the Wolfman and Frankenstein constantly going up against El Santo and the other wrestlers in movies. But you also had a new addition in the Aztec Mummy. The Mexico kind of has its own horror icon yes. as well. But the wild world of Batwoman is 
odd as an exploitation film, I think, because it harkens back to the Batman serial. It's got all this... There's a bad guy called Ratfink, and Batwoman's kind of a bad guy, or is she? And there are these kind of hokey, kind of burlesque gangster guys. Very hokey. But it feels like the, the, the Columbia Batman serials, they didn't have the villains from the comic books. So there's no Joker or Penguin or the Riddler in the, the 40 serials. They have this quite lame bad guy called the Wizard in one of them. I am Dr. Daka, humble servant of His Majesty Hirohita. By divine destiny, my country shall destroy the democratic forces of evil in the United States to make way for the new order. Are you devil? They're quite limp, actually. Um, which is why no one kind of goes back to them. People remember the Batman costume in the 40 series having these devil horns, but there's not much else really to recommend them. But they, even then, you know, in the 60s, they were still still quite popular because it's Batman. I mean, you know, it's hard, it's hard to do Batman wrong. To be fair, George clearly managed it, <laughs> but it is still quite hard to do it. So really what was expo- being exploited in that movie is kind of this sort of Republic Pictures... Um, you know, King of the Rocket Men. It's, it's very, it feels very traditional, actually. Yes. Um, the world world of Batwoman, but the Mexican one is another, I think, great movie in that sequence of yeah. great Mexican women wrestling pictures, I mean, of which there are several. In its tone, it reminded me a lot of Danger Di- Diabolique. It's very much like Danger Diabolique, is it? But, but with, with kind of you know kinky Jacques Cousteau undersea yes. elements. Well, a lot to look forward to. Should we have a lovely music break? Let's do it. Hello, Twing. I'm Viola. Ernestine. Shirley. Here with our latest recording, Nothing Nothing But but a Heartache. and nothing but a heartache. Here with our latest recording, they sound kind of Dutch. They weren't though, they were American. So that's, what an amazing... They seem, yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Well, so that's that's a track which is much loved by uh, Northern Soul aficionados. I'm not surprised. And in fact, if you, if you go on YouTube, if you go online, you can find the three different music films, you know, promotional films that they did for that record uh, we used a bit of them introducing themselves through the black and white version there's also kind of strange kind of 
out of the inkwell psychedelic one. Yeah, with some very questionable bell bottoms. And they're in ink pots for some reason. Yes, and they're wearing a print that makes them look like cows. Yes. With uh, white and brown spots, but who are we to question the aesthetics of the uh, the 60s? Of the 60s. And there's a much better one, uh, which seems to be filmed somewhere like Whitby Abbey. Yeah. Wow. I mean, they're, I mean, this is not great radio, but their outfits in that. Wow. They're very orange. Very orange and red, and uh, lovely, lovely kind of Jill St John wigs as well. Yes. They were terrific acts. The flirtations, uh, originally from South Carolina, found it difficult to get a hit in America, so they ended up being signed to DRAM, which was a label that was originally set up as a, as a label within Decca to promote a patent uh, for stereo recording which Decker owned which kind of gave you a, a sense of, of distance between kind of bits of the orchestra or bits of the band uh, but it's, it's an interesting label within a label it, because of the fact it had this kind of basis in a patent or a technology it gave the artists a lot of room to experiment and of course David Bowie was signed to DRAM I think if DRAM's known for anything, it's for uh, David Bowie's recordings with them, particularly Lovey Till Tuesday and uh, The Laughing Gnome. <laughs> My possibly critical view is I think that the DRAM period of Bowie's recordings actually is his best work for me, in retrospect. I like his Tony Newley musical period. I know that I'm in a minority, possibly, in this conversation. No, 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 not at all. I mean, I was just pondering uh, that lovely connection between Bowie and the flirtations. It's very interesting. It is, isn't it? So on this uh, masher of, of, of talented women finding it hard to kind of get any cultural purchase, another bait and switch that's going on in these two movies seems to be the role of women. Isn't that interesting in view of your research on women in cinema in 1920s Bombay, which we talked about last time? Go on, I'm listening. Are you interested to know some of the background of feminism that coincides with this period of filmmaking? Yes. Sort of 66 to 68? Yes, give me the facts right now. Come on. You can say no. I'm not trying to belabour you with... Okay, go on. Feminist detail. Sure. Do I get a cookie afterwards for having looked up something about women? This may interest you, it may not. When do you think Gloria Steinem wrote her uh, formative essay about being a play... Playboy Bunny. Oh. So this was a, an essay she wrote where she she Which worked. Which magazine is it? I know. I know. It was an Esquire, wrote. I think. Yeah, or something I think like it that. was Esquire. Was it sixty-nine? This is interesting. It was sixty-three. Oh. Much, okay. much, much earlier than I thought. Okay. And that's what we'll go on to talk about when we talk about the first of these two movies, the the Wild World of Batwoman. Uh, what's going on? Sort of sixty-three to sixty-six in feminism in America because I think the thing is with a lot of particularly kind of radicalism in the 60s everything we're sort of looking at it from the 69-70 end yes. and we think that everything was yes. nuts the whole time but actually there was most of the 60s where yes. very little happened and then yeah. it was sped up towards the end well the, the major landmark um, development in the early 60s was that JFK signed an Equal Pay Act in 1963 and he was heavily lobbied by the American Association of University Women so women meeting in spaces uh, to talk about well all kinds of seditious things like rights and being being paid paid. uh, was you know 
in 63 had been in the newspapers was an issue. That is very interesting. Isn't that interesting? Now, this may interest you even more, given that we're talking about an American film and a Mexican film. What was happening in, Me in Mexican feminism? I have no idea. Well, I didn't until I looked this up, I'm ashamed to say, and uh, now I have read up on it. It's very interesting contrast and comparison, and isn't it awful that we don't know this? No. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. Um... You'll be surprised. When did women get the vote in Mexico? Was it much later than other countries or much earlier? So we're talking about a film made in 67 and a film made in 68. So how how near to these two movies do you think Universal Suffrage was in Mexico? You'll be quite surprised. Was it 65? 52. 52, okay. Do you know why Mexican women got the vote? No, I don't. Mexican women got the vote because President Alfonso Ruiz um, Cortines uh, agreed to grant universal suffrage in return for half a million women's votes in the election. I, wow, OK. And really, there's not much else to be said about Mexican feminism throughout the rest of the 50s and the 60s until Mexico 68. Mexico 68, which I'm not pretending to be anything like an expert on I just read the Wikipedia page dear listener I invite you to do the same thing but I find this absolutely fascinating Mexico 68 was a movement of feminists in Mexico inspired by the 68 riots in Paris and the the wave of radicalism yes. that, was, that was sweeping the world the signature move of Mexico 68 was women crossing uh, police barricades different write-ups of Mexico 68 which I have read uh, this evening researching for this show suggests that one of the major outcomes of the Mexico 68 movement was it made women aware of the fact that they could operate as equals with men in men's spaces well that that makes uh, the Mexican Batwoman all the more interesting because a lot of the film doesn't really focus on her romantic life at all we're just sort of introduced to her as an accomplished woman in her own right um who has you know is active in sport she can defend herself she seems to be a pretty good detective and in fact we see a lot of men especially men from law enforcement uh readily seeking her help and not actively resisting her and working with her to solve crime. So in your... Because in these shows that you and I do at home... Oh, we, we should mention that we're, we live together. Yes, that's, yes. That's we why we're talking yes. to you from our living room. It's, 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 our, it's our house yes. in Scotland. When we make these shows together, it's great to talk about your research because obviously you're a film scholar uh, and you've just handed in your, your PhD thesis, I gather. Um, I will not comment any further until I... I'm done with my Viva examination. Just call me superstitious. It's very, very good, listeners. It's very, very good. You'll it's get to read fine. it. It's It's done. It's good. It's mainly you've done it. It's done, yeah. It's the main thing. But in terms of your research into women's cinema, women going to cinema and films with women to the fore in Indian cinema in the 30s, there's not many Indian cinema history podcasts. It's good to just take a moment to kind of compare what we're talking about with cinema in America and Mexico in the 60s yes. with what had happened with women audiences and women in cinema in, 
in pre-independence India and then what was happening by the 60s? Yes. I mean, the the issues that we're talking about from the 60s in Mexico, we uh, I saw the same anxieties that were being played out through films in India in the 1930s because there was also, a, a, alongside the Indian political independence movement to, to overthrow British colonial rule, um, women were also fighting for their rights and to be on equal footing with men in their own right as female citizens of India. So again, I found several films which were either directly or indirectly responding to fears such as what happens when women get access to birth control, what happens when women can legally inherit property from their fathers or inherit wealth, Um, will women's freedom go you know run amok and destroy the very moral fabric of society cinema has responded to these issues for decades across several cultures so it doesn't really surprise me that we're seeing some of the same themes in a mexican from from the 60s and how do the kind of the the exploitative the the gimmicky depictions of women superheroes like Phyllis Nadia or um, Seluchna playing the, the Wildcat of Bombay, these kind of, you know, you have a version of a kind of Irma Vep sort of vampire woman character who's a kind of master criminal cat burglar, but you also have the kind of athletic acrobat type of superhero in a mask, which I think Ruby Rose's Batwoman, we've only had two episodes so yes. far, but they're, they're leaning into the whole kind of sleek and sexy yes. Batgirl on a motorcycle leather uh, thing how do those sort of icons from Indian cinema relate to women having access to men's spaces because like with Phyllis Nadia they were basically again we're on a podcast not on the radio so we can be quite blunt Uh, Mary Evans had very large breasts and there were scenes in her early movies where she was taking baths in in lakes and things like that I mean there was an element of exploitation just because of her physique yes but as time went on it seems like I she mean, became exploitative yes but clickbait no because the poster sort of depicted mm-hmm. that you would see this sort of very statuesque white woman in attire that was considered quite skimpy and scandalous for the time and she had a whip and she had a mask and she would beat the bad guys up and be quite again physical in a way that women in the cinema of that period in India were simply not allowed to be and because we do have access to a few Fearless Nadia films those that's exactly what the film delivers so it wasn't clickbait in the sense that the posters promised you something which the film did not deliver on actually they were quite um, accurate because it, you got exactly what it said on the tin. Something which the posters say for the the Turkish Batgirl seem to not have in common with women superheroes is women superheroes tend not to be sexually available to yes. men. So Phyllis Nadia is the woman with the whip. I mean, it's the kind of overtly it, it, she's a dominatrix. There's no there's no messing around. There's a kind of implication about the Mexican Batwoman that she could have a have a guy in a fight as much as a woman. Yes. We only see her wrestling women. Yes. But presumably she could wrestle and win in the ring. Yes. But also we do see her... I think there's a scene in which she is 
accosted by a few badmashes and we do see her fighting them off. Yeah, she's quite handy. Yeah. I mean, she's shown to be an athlete. She's a wrestler. She fences. She seems to be quite good at swimming and deep diving, so... And she's not getting turned on by beating these guys up. No. She just flattens the puppies. It's all business for her. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Shall we have another quick music break? Yes. Would you like to hear the Fatima's Sandstorm from 1967? The answer to that question, especially coming from you, is always yes. That was the Fatima's Butchiku, a.k.a. Sandstorm, from 1967. It almost sounds like the uh, background music to the uh, initiation of some kind of cult. It does, doesn't it? A lot of these tracks which I've picked, I'm sure Quentin Tarantino, if he's listening, is going to add them to his iTunes playlist and we may see them in a, a, a future Tarantino film. That's if he comes out of retirement again. Again. Uh, but that's an interesting track, isn't it? It's got quite a wallop. It really is. It sounds very uh, apt for an exploitation film. I think so. Yeah, it's got that sort of weird, chaotic energy to it. So there's not much known uh, about the Fatimas themselves, but the the record, the flip side of which is an instrumental, which, shall I just play that as the music bit? Yeah, go on. There you are. It's the music bit. You can hear it now. With this kind of sandstorm noise. So, um, DJ Emperor Bob Hudson was the forerunner of Wolfman Jack, who's the DJ in American Graffiti. And do you know what the link is to American Graffiti? No. George Lucas, when he returned to USC, made a 20 minute short film about DJ Emperor Bob Hudson. I was in San Francisco and every place I went. I heard this great legend of uh, Emperor Norton, who supposedly was a guy, I don't know, I never, I guess no one really knows the true story, but as near as I could figure it out, this guy was a little bit uh, hazy uh, upstairs, and he really got to the point where he thought he was an emperor, and he dressed uh, like an emperor, and he wandered around and uh, proclaimed a peace pact with China, and he'd walk into the Fairmont Hotel and order pheasant under glass and then sign for it. And I thought, what a great way to go. Let them think you're crazy and tell them you're emperor and uh, demand this and proclaim that. And that's the way it happened. I just went on and said, I'm Emperor Hudson and what I say goes and uh, what I say went until I got fired. <laughs> and now, ladies and gentlemen, from Burbank, the Emperor Hudson Show on Super 15 KBLA. Go, beautiful Bob. Something on, uh, so yeah, that was a bit of George Lucas's 20-minute USC film about DJ Emperor Bob Hudson. It's very impressive, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, even, obviously, it's radio. Yeah. But even the sound of it, the way that George Lucas uses this kind of very staccato yes. editing technique in his student films, and, um, you know, one can speculate what what cinema would be like if 
that very interesting experimental filmmaker <laughs> was still around and still making movies. I, for one, would like to see them. But yeah, the the, the Fatimas was a, a an act that uh, Bob Hudson put together. So there you are. But quite, it's quite um, funny how I make these selections of tracks and things, and actually you start to see connections between yeah. kind of the vibe. So, oh, you know that kind of bit where they're talking about the fact that he dresses up and pretends to be someone else, yes. and it's all these kind of split identities, and it's weird, isn't it? How all this kind of garage rock stuff does seem to lend itself to stage names and non yes. and biker gangs and leather and sorting things out in the streets. Because that's really what Batman or a Batwoman is about. It's about taking it to the opposition. Is you're prepared to physically challenge bad guys in the street because, in Batman's case, uh, you know they shot his mum and dad. Yes. Well, that's terrific. So with these films, uh, it's my own unique contrariety. But I don't really like to fisk films, and by fisk I mean. Uh, what they call on the internet, you know, going point by point through something and destroying it, like a Aww. Robert Fisk article. Because I don't, I don't really dig that whole kind of bad movies a good thing. I don't really like kind of, and I also don't like kind of just reviewing something or talking about something to destroy it. Yes. What's the point? Even this first film we're going to look at, the Wild World of Batwoman, it's got some things to recommend it. It's yeah, kind of got interesting it's, aspects. It's an of interesting, it. yeah. It's an interesting film. I wouldn't call it. Um, a good film and I, I can't say I enjoyed it but that doesn't mean that uh, there aren't interesting or things of merit in it Eleven mustachioed daughters running in a field of fat The moon is high, the mandrake screams Please come to us at bat The changeling children shiver round the fire their mothers dance Now there, there is uh, a kind of alternative DVD commentary for the Wild World of Batwoman, which was made in 1967 by Jerry Warren, uh, oh, because wow. there's a Mystery Science Theatre 3000 edition that you can find on YouTube where the little puppets talk over the top of it and right. rip the piss out of it. I hate Mystery Science Theatre yeah, 3000. Yeah, it's not really my thing, to be honest. We've never actually ever talked about it because even though we've how long have we been going out now? Seven years? Yeah, something like that. And we kind of bonded over Ed Wood and stuff like that. But I, because I hate Mystery Science Theatre 3000, I've never, ever talked about it to you until I mentioned it now and there's a yes. microphone recording what we're saying. But I really, what do you think of it? Um, I, I may have... I think I saw maybe a couple of episodes. I didn't think it was particularly funny. I found it quite annoying. I am the person who goes to the cinema and I get irritated when people don't shut up, people in the audience. So the, the very format, the idea of people sitting through a film they don't really want to watch and talking over the top of it is just quite grating, just the concept to begin with. And also a lot of, lot of the films that get dismissed as, you know, they're, they're so bad it's good. Um, I, gen I mean, Ed Wood's films, we talk about this all the time that we're not interested in Edward because he's a terrible director. We actually think he's a really good director who just didn't have the resources to make a film with good, great production values. But there are lots of interesting ideas in his films um, and the, the ideas in them continue to be quite interesting. Ideas of... Uh, 
gender and queerness particularly and the the way that he used um uh, pre-existing footage in the films is quite interesting and he, he was a very skillful filmmaker in many ways it's just unfortunate that he never really had the resources to uh, you know make a, a film properly as he, he would have liked so yeah i don't i'm not a fan of just skewering films because again i don't think uh, what we find of interest in a film doesn't really have much to do with my own personal taste i might in, i might enjoy a lot of films but i might not find anything academically or intellectually interesting in them um but conversely there might not be uh, there might be a film i don't personally enjoy but there are things t- to be said about almost every film i think yeah i mean the edward it's not a bad filmmaker no. and the films we talk about on this show are not bad films no. they're often low budget films they're yes. often films that are kind of struggling to find their voice but there's something about them yes. that's interesting and with this film now that we're going to talk about the wild world of Batwoman made in 1967 there's interesting things about it so when we go through the scenes I'm not tr- we're not trying to kind of do a mystery science 3000 no. what I don't like about that show <laughs> let's part this point sure you know, okay yeah. I think we've established we don't like it what I particularly don't like about it is it punches down. Yes. So it's like a telly show. Yes. Which is making fun of movies which very often didn't have anything like the circulation no. or eyeballs on them yes. that Mystery Science Theatre 3000 had. Yes. Whereas Beavis and Butthead, you know, because this was, you know, during World War Two, you don't know about it, but on MTV in the 80s and early 90s, Beavis and Butthead was mostly them talking over the top of music videos and making yes. fun of them. But the thing is, that wasn't punching down. It was punching yes. up. Like MTV was actually really low budget and yes. pretty shitty. Um, and Mike Judd hadn't made King of the Hill or, you know, he was not kind of at that level as a, a comedy television maker yet. It was kind of a cheap format, really, just to have the guys talk over the videos. Music videos then were the mainstream. I would like to add something here that I think the reason why films like this should be viewed and appraised is um, the reason they're called exploitation films is not just because they use exploitative themes to do with sex and violence, but they are also exploiting often current events. And they're, they're called exploit, exploitation films because they're made in response to something that's happening at that time. And therefore, they need to be churned out quickly. Torn from the newspaper headlines. Yeah, because the films are exploiting a current issue. And that's what makes them so interesting. And that's why we see a lot of interesting themes of that period being reflected in them. Because they were often made in response to and to exploit something that was contemporary uh, about the about society or politics of the time. There's something contemporary to this conversation, which I want to say, but I'm finding it hard to, to, to find the words of the way of, of expressing it. Shall we just ask the pussycat? I think that the answer is always ask the pussycat. Hey, come here. I want your love, honey. 
particles. Amazing. Yes, particles. What you are hearing are actual cosmic ray bullets, the same bullets that crash into all of us. First-rate detection. And a second entry for the dossier. The invader from outer space is a particle. Do you suppose any of it could mean anything? Possibly, but it doesn't mean what it seems. Uh, so yes, Charity, I want your love, was what the Pussycats were singing. Though I do as well. Aww. Uh, and they were a terrific girl group from Norway, from Tromsø in Norway. Then after that, just a little stab of Frank Sidebottom with uh, the Marina music that they used to play out with from Stingray and a bit of Batman. And uh, the point of me picking that was just to illustrate the point, and I'm sure, I mean, God knows you must have thought this yourself. Doesn't Frank Sidebottom sound like Mitchell Froome's music for Cafe Flesh, which I'm playing underneath as the music bed? A strange film, Cafe Flesh. That really is a strange film. One of the few films I haven't been able to watch till the end. But that was a few years ago, and since then I have matured, become more cynical. Um, is that even possible? Possibly, uh, possibly grown my tolerance for strange things. So uh, I think it might be time for a Halloween rewatch of uh, Cafe Flesh. I think there's probably a case for that. And. Um, yeah, this, this music is uh, Mitchell Froome's album, The Key of Cool, Ooh. which was then recycled as the soundtrack for Café Flesh, that noted uh, avant-garde pornographic film, directed by Rince Dream, possibly a pseudonym. Scratchy, the loved ones who were from Niles, Michigan. What a fantastic track. It was quite good, wasn't it? Very nice. Uh, it was recorded in 1966, or was it? Ooh. Because a lot of these uh, all-girl garage bands, I've discovered, uh, were sort of made up in the 90s. So there's a kind of, you know, before fake news was a thing, there were fake all-girl garage bands. Made up to what end? It's kind of like um, the Blair Witch Project that, that okay. people would form a band and then they would kind of create a whole backstory for it. And of course, I suppose in the late 90s, you could 
sort of doctor your biography you could put up fake web pages and things wikipedia wasn't wasn't as prevalent in the late 90s so i don't know maybe that was from 66 the year of adam west batman movie or maybe it wasn't oh it's a great track nonetheless so very much in the spirit 1966 much as these these films we're about to look at yes are in the spirit of uh adam west batman in 66 campy over the top fun fun frothy a good time a good time very much so so we're not going to do a whole dvd commentary for both of them because actually there is one for the wild world of batwoman but we're certainly going to watch it for a bit and pick out some choice scenes and talk about them should we dip in let's do it medallion tv presents a sign of quality So we've got three women here in um, quite short skirts talking about their two-way wrist radios. Of course, that kind of spy gadget was quite a thing in 1967 when this film was made. The idea that you could carry around a small portable device. And as we shall discover as we get further into um, Jerry Warren's film, uh, that becomes quite a major plot point. So while they're um, talking about their vampiric initiation, possibly... Yes, it's, uh, it's not the Girl Scouts of America, is it? No, there's some sort of blood drinking ritual going on. Oh, but it's, it's, it's a milkshake, it's not actually human blood. Well, that's reassuring. How many seconds do you think we are away from some... Uh, quite ropey 60s style dancing I think uh, go-go boots and uh, the frog is is never far away in the wild world of Batwoman it's very much the hallmark of of Batwoman's wild world the wild world of Batwoman there's the titles So it's got um, actually pretty good title music. Yeah, it does. It's got a whole kind of um, Naked City kind of hard-boiled Mickey Spillane type of quality, which is one of the many ingredients in this film. Yes, very very film noir. It looks actually looks like... um, Original screenplay, Jerry Warren. Film noir titles from the 40s. So we know we're in Los Angeles and we're kind of in this world of actually the Batman Columbia yep. Pictures serial uh, from 44 so there's a kind of I mean I don't want to overplay how good this film is because it's not yes we would be false advertising to our listeners but even something uh, fairly ropey quite sort of hastily and thoughtlessly oh, oh, put yeah. together from this from this distance there are many aspects of it which are, are quite interesting. Yes. I mean, something I thought of since we're watching these sort of quite lovely, actually, film noirish titles directed and produced by Jerry Warren, uh, I thought we could talk about how just old films, particularly old films in 
uh, sort of reasonably good nick if the print's been restored just become a sort of very interesting time travel device particularly with you know i'm thinking about soho films like espresso bongo and uh beat girl yeah and uh the small water sammy lee they have acquired a sort of great fascination in recent years because you can now look at these old films that are 40 50 years old or older uh, as though they're new they might be in black and white but the the prints have been restored but you everything looks different you know people like that guy's sailor hat the only person who wears a hat like that now there's there's a a a mugging going on i mean now that i look at this again this is i mean it looks like uh jerry warren clearly very influenced by film noir oh absolutely it's also reminiscent of film noir in the sense that this looks very dated um, it this does not look like a film from the sixties. At least this opening sequence, it's very um, nineteen forty-four. And that sailor's cap is very reminiscent of uh, Jeremy Corbyn speaking things which are dated. Oh, bit of politics! If you're listening to this, if you're listening to this uh, podcast after Christmas, you might need to look up who Jeremy Corbyn is on Wikipedia. Oh, there we go. Well, so we're in the club sequence now. So it now. took took about a minute for the um, there we go hokey go go dancing. But now this is what the, this is what in 1967 the public came along for. It's uh, women in bullet bras. There's an African American lady in the centre of the shot. There, that's the last we'll see of her. I mean, it's also got to be said this is quite a kind of white film. Uh, oh white yes. Film. Oh the you know. This this is about as white a film can get. But she's a very good dancer. Um, I'm not going to um, I'm not going to fault these ladies' enthusiasm. This is most impressive. Oh, now we've got some woman at a bar. We've got some proper lounge lizards now. There's some some men, some slimy looking men with stingray ties and slick back hair, and they're sort of lecherously hovering around a young woman. Oh, by oh, there's some there's some black guys. Again, that's the last we'll see of them. But it's quite interesting to see no, just what an LA no, club looks like. Come on, don't don't take a drink from someone that oh, looks dear. like that. Plastic straws. There's another thing you don't you don't uh, no. see nowadays. That would be pasta now or bamboo. Um, this is something we don't often see. Denim. That's true. Or rather, uh, trousers which are clearly uh, denim pants. That that would be an interesting. Um... The LA freeway. There's another thing you don't often see in films because, of course, that's you can't film yes. there. Yes, that would be an interesting uh, blog or something, though. Uh, but denim in in film. Denim on film. Yeah. Uh, denim tuxedo on film. Oh, you know, it's a. Uh, I mean, denim is so strongly associated, especially in America, with youth culture. That I, I bet it would be an interesting visual project for someone to go through just films from the 60s, 70s, 80s and how the denim styles. Yes, I mean, because this film is made on an extremely low budget. I we're bet starting, these are all their own clothes. And we're starting to actually see kind of aspects of perhaps working class America in, yep. in 66, 67 that you wouldn't 
normally see. That's a very good point. Yeah. And that's one of the things I think that is interesting about these films. And also, uh, I think, also explains what I like to think of as the uh, La Renaissance, the Lawrence Harvey Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Lawrence Harvey's, a, uh, I think, always been regarded as a good actor, a good, a good film presence in films in the 60s. But, oh, here we go. Oh, here's our Here's girl. the Batwoman. Look at the size of that glass, that faience ring. Yeah, I mean, she seems to have dressed up for, um, frankly, you've sort of... Um, I mean... Masked ball, trick-or-treating? Yes. Um, I mean, if she is some kind of dominatrix or, um, you know, m- madam, then uh, even by the standards of, of Hollywood madam, she dresses quite eccentrically, Batwoman. I, uh, this is reminding me of um, uh, a bit of a tangent, but somewhat related. So one of my favourite books of all times, which is... Sugedu Mehta's Maximum City. About Bombay. Wonderful uh, book on Bombay. But uh, there's a really funny and interesting chapter on uh, very, very low-budget films made in, by the Bombay film industry. So these are not Bollywood blockbusters, very ropey films. So the um, author basically followed a, uh, an actor, a struggling actor, who finally finds his one film role, but that in a very low-budget film. Um, so there's this bit where the um, actor describes how the uh, there was no budget at all in the production for costume. So what the film's costume person would do was they would hit up bargain uh, street markets in the morning just pick up whatever was available. They would use everything up in the shoot and they would wrap it up by the evening and she would just go return them, saying, oh, these didn't fit. (laughs) Batwoman's outfit in this film is sort of reminding me of... um, I can just about imagine the costume person just went to a Halloween store, just picked up whatever they thought was cool um, and then just assembled this very strange but quite interesting outfit we've got a the, there's a kind of a, a proper villain Ratfink who's kind of Zorro with a yes a piece of cloth over his face but with like a Zorro nose hole cut out um, eyes without a face but think very low budget or possibly the Zodiac killer I mean he has got a kind of sort of slight sort of serial killer yes. vibe about him he's hanging around outside the window watching things and you know, perhaps he's going to pounce. We're not quite sure. Uh, we've got some some sort of low rent uh, Doctor Frankenstein action, and uh, uh, the lady from the bar, the Go Go dancers, now uh, in a in a cell. She's behind yeah, bars, but is looking uh, remarkably unconcerned for someone who's been imprisoned. But well, she's trying to remote there. And we've got the kind of German accented evil scientist and uh, sensitive portrayal of a hunchback um, <laughs> very much of the period yes but to connect your very interesting point to what I was saying about Lawrence Harvey I think a lot of the appeal of films of the 60s of this of this sort of calibre which is to say quite low yes is because very little thought went into the production values and the costumes now you can just look at it and go, 
God, look, they've got an ice bucket, and that's what ice bucket yeah. buckets used to look like. So things like seeing jukeboxes and the insides of diners, or in the case of a sort of Soho film like The Small World of Sammy Lee, what sort of Formica caps look like. Yes. Because they're all gone now. There's only a couple of genuine Formica caps like that, that you, like you see in that Anthony Newview film, left in Britain. So now we've got Ratfink talking to them on some kind of view screen thing. And of course, the the uh, the flat screen that we're watching this film on is five times as large as yes. as this futuristic piece of technology. Now they're by the pool at uh, uh, Batwoman's place. Okay, how many seconds should we count down till the next round of questionable go-go dancing begins? Well, I say about fifteen seconds. We've got you know we've got the Bat girls in their bikinis by the pool and they're all lining up for roll call and Batwoman's got even more costume jewellery on I love how this is shot in Los Angeles and it seems to be a quite sort of bright sunny Los Angeles day and Batwoman is basically dressed in an all black outfit with black tights um, some elaborate face mask she she and and she's got some kind of fur coat on. She looks so out of place. So they've sworn a sort of oath. They've sworn an oath to uh, fight crime as a group of women, and now they're going into their lounge area. Uh, these kind of Frank Lloyd Wright sort of open plan houses, all on one level, often with a kidney shaped barbecue area outside. Are kind of the default in yes. uh, Southern California. I wonder if the, the way that a lot of um, porn shoots are done in, I'm assuming, these sort of big mansions, which yeah, they're all, people they're all just the, rent out. They're all in the San Bernardino yeah, Valley. Exactly. Usually the deal would be you'll have like a, a yep. dentist or a surgeon, yep. and he wants some women walking around with no kiss on sure. in his house, or possibly men. Uh, so, the, the, I mean, this is uh, as vanished a, a form of filmmaking yes. as... Jerry Warren making Batman knockoffs, yes. but uh, sort of weekend porn shoot would be, you know, you get the keys or maybe the dentist, yeah. you know, is there. But yes, it's it certainly is the case, particularly in the nineties, yeah. as the production of pornographic films. I mean, in other words, yes. feature length uh, porn. Yes, you know, the kind of the, the production values went up a notch because DV was affordable. Mm-hmm. You know, you could go and get a you know a store bought. A video camera, maybe a tape based one or maybe a DVD based one, and you could shoot in in high def, and you know the the budget for the whole movie could be a couple of thousand. Yeah, you know, not not counting the actors. So you could... I, I wonder if this was the same case. Oh yes, uh, for you know all these incredibly oh, low set. budget films. But yeah, this, exactly. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's a... someone's house that they've just rented out and. I'm guessing the agreement would be that, well, not the agreement, but the assumption would be that this would be a film that would be wrapped up in two days. I mean, it's interesting. So Catherine Victor is the actor who's playing Batwoman. Who looks, uh, I'm sorry, but especially with the mask on, it's uncanny how much she looks like Melania Trump. Yes. And that whole sequence is a very kind of odd sort of, have this kind of like Jane Jacobs talking about, you know, um, city planning to a group of cons- concerned yes. women of, of you know, Maryland somewhere. Yes. They're obviously, there's kind of like a sort of cross between a sort of glee club and concerned women citizens. Yes. 
except they're all in their bras and knickers. But yes, uh, in many ways, this the alternative title for the film would be the bureaucratic world of Batwoman, because there's a lot of people sitting around and. The, the the energy of the whole film is very much sort of like going to a town planning meeting in a small town. Yeah, combined with dinner theatre. There's a lot of kind of people standing around waiting for someone yes. else to say their line. Okay, our previously roofied, still in prison woman is now doing some lacklustre go-go dancing yeah, behind she's sort of, bars. She's remembered her character as a go-go dancer, so she's just kind of sort of miasmically going through the motions. Of the Watusi. Uh, so, this is an interesting point. Uh, Catherine Victor made a number of films for, for Jerry Warren. I'll go on to do a bit of a kind of biographical info dump about Jerry Warren in a minute, if you want. Sure. I mean, you don't have, I don't have to do it. I've just done loads of research. I mean, I prepare for these things. I don't just kind of come in completely... I don't yes, just, you know, I'm, bust I'm like it. me, who has just rolled out of bed... Uh, but you're, I mean, you're a, an academic. I mean, you, you know. Yes, I'm not an academic on Jerry Warren. But I mean, you could, you, what you bring to this uh, discussion is your acumen. I mean, you've got gravitas, you've got acumen. I mean, you know, you're. Oh, keep going. I well, mean, <laughs> you know, if you. <laughs> I mean, by, by, by all means, don't let me stop you. So we meet again. Welcome to my humble facilities. So we meet again, but for the first time on your terms. I can't recall ever being placed in a position where I would perpetuate your evil plan. So we skip forward a bit. We've now got these this interminable scene of these men in this corporation <laughs> sitting talking about how uh, people could monitor the uh, communications on two-way radios. I mean, this uh, this is the second time we're, that we're effectively watching this, and I have to say, I'm, I'm still not very clear about the plot of this film. Such as it is. I mean, you know, it's something. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, I also noticed that um, I don't know which official or <coughs> unofficial. Uh, Website you got this film from, but I noticed that Archive. someone. Oh, okay. So okay. Someone's so put not, it on archive. Not unofficial yeah. then. Okay. Yeah. Um, someone's gone through the trouble of putting the Spanish subtitles. Spanish yeah. subtitles. Well, of course. The, I mean, it's partly why I, I suggested we look at the Wild World of Batwoman and the Mexican Batwoman because there is quite a strong uh, Mexican Los Angeles Absolutely. link between the two yes. movies, including in there production yes um but just to just to finish off the point i was uh making before we skip forward although Catherine victor and other actors in this jerry warren film uh were making very low budget films and Catherine victor went on to make not only movies for jerry warren but also fred Island ray it went into the 90s what they weren't doing at this time was making roughies Mm. which were these kind of because Russ Mayer hadn't really become the cultural force that he is now yes obviously the Moral Mr. T's had been commercially hugely successful hugely successful um, and he'd made 
Fast Pussycat Kill Kill. Do you know what an alternative title for Fast Pussycat Kill Kill was? A working no. title? The Leather Girls. Well, that's very interesting. So this whole kind of biker girls gone mad type of yes. vibe was very much in play at this time, 66, 67. But not the whole kind of bra and pants as they're doing now, sitting around in leopard print on leatherette easy chairs. I mean, this man's wandered in and there's, you know, the Jane Jacobs We're crime fighting glee sure group. We're not who this man is at this point. Or who though. any of them are. But there is a bat on the... There's a painting of a bat. Yes. And it, she, Catherine Victor's Batwoman's playing um, an organ now, Yes. You know, like the kind of old music for The Shadow. Yes. The Shadow knows. So that's got a kind of nice kind of old-time radio quality. I must say, a bunch of women who... Uh, two scenes ago took the oath of fighting crime they're just sort of like lounging around and looking quite bored and disinterested it's not much crime fighting um, going on it's the kind of uh, superheroic equivalent of masterly inactivity I mean if you're already number one why try any harder I mean presumably if you kind of sit around in Los Angeles in bars at this time uh, in leopard skin lounging pants then you know eventually the 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 low rent gangsters come to you I would imagine I don't know I'd have to try it but yeah so you, what you don't have is is actors who have got something like a proper career going off and making things that were not quite porn but because they weren't quite yes. porn they actually had quite I mean now to to our sort of contemporary eye actually less innocence than Ross Mayer I mean at yes. least Ross Mayer you know there's naked women jiggling and yes. there's quite weird surreal humour and and you know Nazis because yes. he wasn't keen on Nazis no it's, it's not then those films were not pretending to be something they were not whereas films about sort of bored housewife becomes a, yes. a, a prostitute at weekends and she likes her clients knocking her around and she yeah. flounces around in motel rooms in bullet bras quite unpleasant actually yes. in a lot of ways but often same kind of decor because exactly as we're saying they're shot in people's real yep. houses and you just have this kind of fascination of that's what someone's living room looked like in 1966 in Los Angeles but it's quite interesting though she to hear that she had at least she she sounds like she had a consistent career oh very much so um, for at least two decades. Yeah, she's working well into the nineties with Fred Allen Ray in the end. Would you like to know more about Jerry Warren? Yes, I would. Well, Jerry Warren is uh, interesting as a film maker, only insofar as he recycled a lot of other people's material and made these very, very low budget and I think generally quite poorly regarded films. The Wild World of Batwoman is possibly the nadir of his filmmaking. He certainly had many low points. I mean, it was it was <laughs> it's a career mostly comprising uh, of troughs, not crests. Yes, put it that way. Uh, under, uh, underwhelming fare for the most part. What he's probably best known for is recycling material from Mexican horror films. So, uh, for example, he re-edited material from the Aztec Mummy. So it's interesting that a lot of Mexican films which in turn were recycled from Hollywood monster movies 
then became the inspiration and where the, those ideas were then were then recycled through the route of Mexican horror films in uh, into uh, low budget American films. Yeah, so he, that's an interesting uh, route of circulation in terms of ideas. Isn't so it? so he, re- he reused material from the Aztec mummy for Attack of the Mind mummy, and uh, he recycled stuff from House of Terror, it was a Mexican horror movie, in Face of the Screaming Werewolf, to add an extra layer of Hollywood and Mexican cinema borrowing from each other. The Mexican original House of Terror had Lon Chaney Jr. Oh, interesting. So he was, Jerry Warren was using material of an American yes. horror star, Lon Chaney Jr., but filmed in Mexico and then recycling it back in uh, in a very, very, very low-budget uh, Hollywood film. And, of course, a lot of the the Mexican horror films, the, the um, luchador films which had horror elements like the Aztec Mummy uh, were used by Spook Show magicians, mm. which is uh, an area of film exhibition in the 40s through till the basically late 60s, which I'm increasingly interested in. Yes. Well, I think we're both quite interested yeah, in Yeah, absolutely. We? And I've written a piece which was on movie.com linking Boris Karloff in Peter Bogdanovich's first film, Targets, from 69 back to Karloff's appearances in person when uh, Universal was promoting various Frankenstein films that he was in. Well, that was plugging into this phenomenon from the 30s onwards where stage magicians would hire a movie theatre and put on a kind of spooky late-night show drawing on stuff. I mean, in some cases, stuff that's been, that had been going on since the 18th century. I mean, Phantasmagoria, which influenced Mary Shelley in writing the original Frankenstein... Uh, which is basically using a, a magic lantern to project images of ghosts and skeletons on the yes. wall. I mean, that had been around since since Frankenstein was written. But then, of course, as time went on, uh, magicians like Blackstone, who had these, these touring spook show, midnight magic shows, would just put on a movie. Yes. And one of the movies uh, you could get really cheaply and not have to pay very much for the exhibition rights was the Aztec Mummy movies. Yes. So... Some of the trailers for the spook shows uh, are great because you have these kind of over-the-top, overblown claims about, you know, it's all this kind of stuff of, you know, girls, can you get your, your yes. guy to go, you know, yes. or is he a chicken? I can't imagine this film doing well on that circuit because it no. doesn't have enough horror and doesn't have enough sex. Or any sex. Or anything. It's <laughs> got guns. There's a lot of women standing yeah. around by a, a water cooler with guns. There's some subplot. Guns, especially not not pistols. But again, because we, you brought up targets. I'm very. I and we had this discussion when we watched targets together for the first time. Um, it would be interesting to know when rifles and sniper uh, rifles became a thing that you saw in American films. Because you don't look at someone having a sniper and think a sniper rifle, um, and think, oh, that person clearly has it for you know their personal protection. Yeah, we've got go-go girls dancing oh, around yeah, with yeah. rifles it's very and very uh, disturbing. Uh, kind of and a sort of weird premonition of yes. uh, the NRA and various yeah, sort of Ru- Russian spies yeah, absolutely. parading themselves around well, with firearms. This is something. 
thing I didn't uh, realize when we were watching Targets, but now that I think about it, it's also a very pressing film in the sense that it, it depicted a just a psychopathic white guy yeah. who just yeah, it's, goes it's, on goes on to inflict um, violence. Well, we're going to do a whole uh, but the show film about... doesn't make any any attempt to go. Oh, you know he, you know he was feeling he was treated like shit by his wife, or he had you know mental health problems, or he was influenced by video games, and all these excuses that are touted out when white men go out and um, so now we've do got a shootings. we've got another sort of interesting bit of sort of real LA life in the sixties. We've got a kind of jazz combo. Bit of blue note jazz. This looks like a real, a real diner. Yeah. We've got some kind of real Borscht Belt sort of vaudeville stuff going on. Bit of shtick between some comedians. Yeah, we'll do a whole show about Targets. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, but I'm kind of saving that one because Targets is kind of key yes. film for me, and obviously I've written this article about how I think Peter Bogdanovich's first movie, Targets, is his best yes, movie. Yes, it's an incredible film. Uh, I mean, he's um, amazing filmmaker. And I could talk about targets all day, obviously, because I've written this very long piece on movie about it. But yeah, you're right that it's basically two parallel stories. You've got a story about Boris Karloff as this fading horror actor, and you've got this other story about this kind of crazy sniper, who it's implied very subtly is uh, traumatized by Vietnam. Yes, but it's based on a, a real shooting incident, uh, and at one point in targets, Karloff is saying to Bogdanovich playing this kind of um, sort of hokey wonderkin film director, Sammy. Yes. He says, you know, these are the real monsters. And he points to this newspaper uh, headline, which is directly referring to the real shooting that yes. inspired Bogdanovich. Well, also, it, it cannot be a coincidence that this is, this is the decade when um, there were so many prolific serial killers yeah. that were... And even the, the the concept of serial killers came into existence. I mean, that Jerry Brudos, Ed Kemper, so many nasty serial killers who were active in America during the sixties. I mean, also it's interesting to think about. You know, Batman doesn't like guns. Yeah. Because Batman was uh, directly inspired by the fact that in the thirties, when Bill Finger and um, Bob Kane came up with the Batman character, the streets were not safe for yes. most people. And the prospect of being held up at gunpoint in the street was a, was a yes. real serious problem, uh, as happened at the start of this movie. And now we've got the go-go girls with guns again. Tits and guns. Had a drill. How's that taste? It's so interesting how you, with a film which is really not a good movie, no. but actually when you start to make all these sorts of connections yes. thematically, actually they are quite sort of, yes. they're quite dense documents, surprisingly. Yes, I mean, if you think about the care and effort that goes into, say, pick any mainstream Hollywood film from the time, so much care and effort going, goes into controlling precisely what is in each frame. Yeah. Um, 
But with films like these, because it's just sort of shot on, lo on location and a lot of it doesn't seem to be planned, the, the camera ends up picking up things, which is just sort of happening in real life in the background. Yeah, we said earlier, shot of aircraft, we had a stock bit of footage of yes. a TWA flight coming into LA, equals jet setting, Yes. action, adventure. So we had the stock footage of that. But now we've got a guy who's a kind of um, sort of burlesque, stooge guy because he's got the sort of funny hat pushed down over his eyes but he's carrying a briefcase with patent office written on it so we know that he's from the patent yes. office and that's also how we know we're in 1966 because not only does nobody walk around with a briefcase with patent no. office no one walks around with a briefcase we must concentrate ourselves fully and thusly penetrate into the realms of etheric existence we must call upon an etheric guide who will contact those at this table within the next few moments. May we hear a voice, a sign that this message is being yeah, received. I'm completely lost in terms of plot. I have no idea what's going on anymore. Uh, essentially, there's a company that has the patent for a device that can snoop on uh, people's telephones. So everybody's worrying about surveillance of their personal communications. We call out to the world of spirit. Which is actually, I mean, if it was a more interesting film, this would, this would be a more interesting yes. aspect of it. But it's just so flat in terms of the acting. I mean, the, this guy's trying to sort of react to something that's going on. This guy with glasses is turning and there's a reaction shot. But it's just people sitting and saying Yes, hence things. the... the incredibly not wild town council meeting of Batwoman. The carefully minuted world of Batwoman. <laughs> well, would you like to know a little bit more about Jerry Warren? Actually, right now I would like to know what our next piece of music is going to be. Well, I think what we're going to do is we're going to listen to um, the Shamettes, Big Bad Wolf. <laughs> The Shamettes, Hey There Big Bad Wolf. Great track. I thought, uh, as the kind of last of these all-girl groups, I'd play something that is, I think, probably quite familiar to a lot of listeners, but uh, it's an oldie but a goldie. And the Shamettes, of course, were the, the girl group that Sam Sham of Sam Sham and the Pharaohs, a.k.a. Domingo Samduro, formed because Sam Sham's touring show became a whole kind of roster of acts, and so... He thought he might as well kind of have his own his own girl group. But uh, that track that 
that he wrote for them has kind of achieved its own life independent of a woolly bully a woolly bully a woolly bully you were going to tell me about Jerry Warren's career Fred Owen Ray who is I think known to a lot of people for his low budget independent films is on the quite bit of a scholar I mean often was the case often is the case with people who make very very low budget Mm. films is they're actually extremely clever Herschel Gordon Lewis who made everything 10,000 Maniacs and you know you name it all those movies had a PhD from (laughs) Harvard or something and you know came up with the idea for doing Blood Feast the first of those proper gory films because he just said well no one's doing John Webster you know the the, the Jacobean playwright who first introduced Grand Guignol-esque horror to the English stage Roger Corman of course a Rhodes Scholar yes absolutely many exploitation film people are intensely clever yes and also very interested in film and in and in drama and literature and culture you have to be in order to make feature films for for no money and for no resources you have to be incredibly passionate about making them well so fred and ray wrote uh, a book the new poverty row uh, how independent film makers became distributors very interesting and there's a chapter in it about Associated Distributors Productions Incorporated, which was Jerry Warren's company. And I'm going to read it over bits of Link Ray doing the Batman theme. Why not? It's a Batman podcast. And uh, the only Batman theme I've not played homage to is, is Link Ray. And, you know, he's the king of, of rockabillies. Come on. If you've got a problem with Link Ray, you've got a problem with me. This is Fred Olin Ray on Jerry Warren. I'd shoot one day on this stuff and throw it together. At that point, I was in the business to make money. I never, ever tried in any way to compete or to make something worthwhile. I did only enough to get by, so they would buy it, so it would play, and so I'd get a few dollars. It's not very fair to the public, I guess, but that was my attitude towards this. So that's quoting Jerry Warren. Jerry Warren's strange and aloof approach to filmmaking and the movie going public in general was astounding. He could not make up his mind as to what exactly he wanted to be. Film director, patch-up artist or straight huckster. The bulk of his work... What? Yeah, he puts it in air quotes. ...was in the 1950s and the 1960s and was sporadically distributed by his own company as if it were more of a hobby than a business. Warren claimed to have dabbled in show business previously as an actor in films like Ghost Catchers, Anchors Away and Unconquered. Whether his films were successful or merely a way for Warren to exercise his ambition of being a producer while taking advantage of lucrative tax breaks is hard to determine. What we can be certain of is the cavalier attitude with which Warren approached his subject matter. ADP's output was some of the poorest ever offered in cinema. With lurid but exciting titles like Teenage Zombies and Terror of the Blood Hunters, Warren's films look very inviting for an exploitation-hungry crowd. One can only imagine what kind of response they got when films like The Incredible Petrified World opened with a five-minute documentary on ocean life, tacked on for running time, then proceeded with reams of meaningless dialogue, poorly recorded sound and static shots that sometimes ran the entire length of a ten-minute roll of film. 
Warren admitted to not caring about the entertainment value of his pictures. He felt that at his level of filmmaking, it simply was not necessary or convenient to put too much effort into his pictures. This attitude has endeared him and his movies to fans of the genre the world over. You didn't have to go all out and make a really good picture, he told interviewer Tom Weaver. You just had to make the kind of thing that was weird. So later on, uh, Fred Olin Ray talks about the wild world of Batwoman. His last ADP feature was his crowning glory. With the Batman craze in full tilt, he theorised that he could make a Bat-like feature and get away with it. He called Catherine Victor and offered her the leading role in The Wild World of Batwoman. Victor was no longer enthralled with Warren's productions, was enticed into the role by the promise of colour photography, her own Bat-boat and big production values. Wait, so you're telling me that Warren, who notoriously made films which were clickbait, clickbaited Catherine Victor with being in this film? Yes, with a, with a Bat-boat. Well, it's a bat boat. I mean, bat boats are cool. Yes, but there were no bat boats in that film. No bat boats? No, no. colour photography? No. <laughs> These turned out to be little more than Warren's fantasies, as she saw each cherished item fall by the wayside. Much like Teenage Zombies, this film is made more enjoyable by the fact that it is one of Warren's few original productions. It has all the earmarks of Warren's worst work, and does rise above the level of something as tedious as the petrified world. It is funny in an unintentional way, and at times it is not hard to look at. Jerry delivered the Batwoman script to me at Will Wright's ice cream parlour in Beverly Hills, Bruno Visota recalled. He pulled it out of his pocket, looked around mysteriously, then handed me the sides, my part of the script, typed on onion skin, and once again I knew I was in for it. It would be like memorising a telephone book, with passages picked at random. Bruno Visota, who's in this movie, had a very, very long career. Um, I think his sort of longest stint was being, he was a barkeep in Bonanza. His CV was very, very extensive and he had a very credible career as a character actor. Uh, but obviously, you know, work was quite yeah. thin on the ground. And it, it must have been hard for actors uh, like DeSoto because his first film role was in The Wild One in '53. So to go from to go from the wild from grace, one to you know the, the the wild one to the wild world of Batwoman. I mean, I don't know for. I mean, obviously, you know, we've no idea of knowing what these people felt about being in these films. But I do wonder sometimes if they just thought, well, at least I'm acting. Yeah. I, at least I am being an actor. That's a lot of the irony of these things. Is many of the people. I mean, we're now watching Rat Fink in his black coat wrestling with a go-go dancer on a beach. Uh, we've got a stooge with a torch and a another go-go dancer, except she's got a, a noose round her neck and he's leading her on a piece of rope. There's a lot of footage from um, the mole people that's been recycled for this sequence. So the reason that the monsters all look like the mole people is he's just reused footage from from that movie. But the great irony for a lot of these actors is even making it they may not have considered it their best work no and yet here it is I mean we're watching it and someone is listening to us talking about it it exists for posterity on archive.org which is the um, web archive of the American Library of Congress yep and someone has very carefully put Spanish subtitles on this and yes 
we've been able to find it. It's odd, isn't it? It's so strange that they, they probably a lot, a lot of people in in this movie were in you know a Steinbeck play in a you know a small theatre in Los Angeles and they considered that to be their finest work and that's now completely forgotten and now we're watching something that that they probably took on as you know a job for money I mean I mean much like Jerry Warren's saying is you know didn't really care very much about the audience just wanted to get paid it's quite cynical but perhaps that kind of rather mercenary approach allows this more interesting stuff to just kind of flow through it it doesn't uh, really speak to any film's merit where the monster comes in in the last five minutes um, and you're not even bothered so all the characters are basically congregating to a a, a big lab on the beach and Ratfink's got some girls tied up should we should we just skip to the uh, end yes please okay chaos confusion yeah, yeah. there's, uh, around, there's yeah. a big fight at the end there's this thing of in Oh, and it oh. was the guy from the corporation all along. But there's this what thing a in Scooby Doo moment. In uh, it really is, isn't it? Yes. And now we've got the the sensitive portrayal of a of a, a, a mentally disabled man who's the hunchback. Oh, very. He's got his comic business to do. What do you think of her ray gun? Um, it looks like a hairdryer. Yeah, I think it actually is a hairdryer. It must have been a problem with kind of um, groovy design chic at the, at the time. That if someone actually had come up with some kind of futuristic James Bond technology, in many cases, if you were just kind of wielding it, like those go-go dancers were with their rifles and pistols and things earlier on, if you had a thing that was actually a viable ray gun, people might just go, you've just got a you've just got a hairdryer. Yeah. Well, there's sort of more comic business and you know, drama is conflict. Oh, and it's all been resolved, so the hunchbacks figured out that in fact he'd been given some formula that made him uh second banana and now he's the first banana again he's recovered his mental faculties there's just a lot of sort of sitting around talking and oh so now we're at the end and we're back at Batwoman's pad by the pool oh and some more go-go dancing so she's so you know it's all the Scooby-Doo ending is it's all been resolved by the fact that they can all they can bug out by the pool well I don't know about you but um, I do think Elements of this film are very interesting, but it is, on the whole, a very boring film. Yeah, it makes an interesting contrast with the film we're going to go on to watch next, which is the Mexican Batwoman film. Or, to give it its Spanish title, 
Lamulher Murcielago. In that, there is very little to recommend the world, world of Batwoman. Uh, it's alternative title because Jerry Warren was sued by the owners of, really? of Batman. Was um, she was a hippie vampire? And I looked that up. Uh, I've put a image on the blog that goes with these shows uh, of an ad beneath 2001 in 1971 uh, at a movie theatre in Miami for a she was a hippie vampire so the movie was obviously still I mean, considering uh, the fact that uh, Stanley Kubrick used to get people sending him to send him ads for his films because he wanted to the end. know it's where over. they were running and yeah. stuff so are you telling me that uh, it might be possible that someone sent him an ad for 2001 and, and he, he might have spotted no yeah he looks like went oh there's there's that yep. schlockmeister Jerry yep. Warren god I saw um, yeah Kubrick sitting there going I saw face of the screaming werewolf there's an hour of my life I'm never having back well considering the rate at which Kubrick was making movies yes even by the time of doing 2001 he probably had time to watch Jerry Warren's films oh, probably, I, I mean I have no idea what he must have thought of people like Jerry Warren who must have just churned out 10 films in a year are you ready Boots start walking I think that uh, Stanley Kubrick would probably look down on filmmakers like Jerry Warren don't you think that was a brief stab of uh, these boots were made for walking Nancy Sinatra of course it was just going that way go-go boots oh god yeah absolutely Stanley Kubrick what absolutely that Stanley Kubrick would look down on no the go-go boots yes I was saying absolutely to the go-go boots but we're not sure about Kubrick I think he probably would have looked down maybe on uh, the production values but I'm sure as a filmmaker uh, I'm sure he would have empathised with another filmmaker who was just trying to get his film made. And also a film of lots of people standing around sort of saying things and then kind of strange borderline occult activities going on. Um, Eyes wide shut. Yeah, absolutely. I mean arguably his last film is sort of taking us into a sort of a wild world of Tom Cruise. Yes. If you can imagine such a thing. I don't really care to actually. Yeah, me either. Uh, so, from the wild world of Batwoman to the Mexican Batwoman, or to give it its Spanish title, La Mujer Murciélago. Which we think is a decent Spanish pronunciation, but I'm letting you do it. You're our resident. So you're, you're letting you're just going to throw me under the bus when we get the uh, listener complaints. Well, I mean, you can you can speak how many languages can you speak? English, Tamil. Hindi, Hindi, Marathi, Malayalam. What would the Hindi for the Batwoman be? Uh, bat is chamgadar in Hindi, a word I promise you most Indians have never used in their lives. We would just call it the Batwoman, but for the sake of interest, it's chamgadar orat, which is literally Batwoman. Well, if you need to refer to Batwoman in India, 
Music for Films is here to help. Before we watched Rani Cardona's The Batwoman from 1968, I looked up the periodical in which Gloria Steinem's Playboy uh, Bunny Girl article, oh, yes. The Bunny's Tale Appeared, it was, it was Show magazine. Ah, oh, okay. And uh, both parts of it are linked on the blog that goes with this programme, which you can find at thebeekeepers.com. There you go, some excellent reading to go with some lovely listening. Well, we, tr- we try to, you know, leave our well, listeners with... You're a full-service agency. It's very a much whole so. experience. Very much so. And we like to leave people with a sense that there's kind of more, uh, there's more depth and breadth uh, that, you know, after you listen to these programmes, if there are aspects of it which you find interesting, there's a kind of, there's a reading list that can go with it, in a way. So this is The Mexican Batwoman. It was made by Rene Cardona, who is interesting in relation to Jerry Warren because he made a number of films in Mexico which were then dubbed for the American market by Kay Gordon Murray. When Kay Gordon Murray presents Little Red Riding Hood and the Monsters. See the Wicked Witch and all her bad guys. Bad guys? Mr. Hurricane. The Robot. Carrothead. And the Siamese Twins, two in one. Frankenstein. A giant spectacle in color with a story children and grown-ups will never forget. You are just a playful rascal, but I know I'll find you near. But it's ready, he can smell you, and I'll catch you, don't you see? There's a selection of trailers that goes with that film that I found, which includes some quite scary ones with um, American circus clowns going and performing south of the border down Mexico Way, oh, which are, they are quite... Mm. Yeah, there's okay. something quite sort of, mm. sort of grim Topeka quality to some of them. But K. Gordon Murray's films are only aesthetically traumatising. Yes. The actual content of them is, is fairly quite benign. benign, yes. Well, that's interesting to talk about in relation to Rene Cordona, because although his work was uh, ripped off and utilised by K. Gordon Murray, his films are actually beautiful. And his use of colour and everything is terrific and now we're going to watch his Batwoman film and by comparison with the Jerry Warren film it's a masterpiece so from the very start we're going to have a good time it's fun times it's got good title music Maramonti Hector Godoy David Silver in Batwoman so it's got this whole kind of it's a bit like um, the beach movies like Dr. Goldberg and the Bikini Machine where the types of movies that had Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello they started to kind of add these Batman-y James Bondy type elements mainly in uh, those two Vincent Price uh, villain super villain movies of course, there's also uh, the Ghost in the Invisible Bikini, which yes, has got Boris Karloff right. and Basil Rathbone in, which, although that's a kind of poolside party film, it's got a similar kind of vibe. Now, something I wanted to say while we've got this lovely Tijuana Brass influence music uh, is this is a very kind of 
effervescent, frothy, fun. It is. You know, yes, upbeat. energy, energy, energy. Yeah. But what was actually happening? This is made in 1968. So in 1968, uh, by May, the middle of that year, the world was being transfigured by uh, angry student protests. Yes. Quite a contrast with this kind of vibe. Um, which has only really found its way into cinema through a couple of films, French films from the period. I mean, the main ones I'm thinking of are Truffaut's Stolen Kisses, which isn't, strictly speaking, a kind of student protest political film. Uh, But it does make reference to the fact that the Paris protests are happening at the same time. There's also a film like any other, which is Godard's film, which... Have you ever tried watching that? No, I haven't. I mean, (sighs) Breathless is good. But I'm not, I've got to say, a huge fan of all of Goddard's work. I think he's one of the more uh, overblown auto directors in a competitive field. It really is a competitive field. But a film like any other is just students who were part of the protest talking about what happened in Cut With News Footage. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that while this Batwoman movie was on release in... Mexico. Uh, they're talking now about the fact that a body's been found in Acapulco Bay of a wrestler. But what was going on in Mexico in that year of 68 was Mexico hosted the first Olympic Games to be in a developing country. And so this was a, a huge deal for the Mexican government. Uh, but it coincided with initially fights between different student groups in Mexican campuses, particularly in Mexico City. Hmm. Uh, Because, of course, a lot of what was underpinning the student protests around the world in 68 was a political conflict within student politics. It wasn't... We now think of it as kind of students versus the cops, like anti-Vietnam War protests in America or the Grosvenor Square uh, protests in London. But there was a lot of internal conflict as yes. well. And then that was used by the Mexican authorities to crack down on the protests, because obviously it coincided with the games, which were showing Mexico up. That led to the Tlatelolco massacre, which to this day is one of the um, traumatising events of modern Mexican history, where peaceful protesters were drawn into protests and people were gunned down and tortured and imprisoned. That was going on the same time this fun, frothy, sexy yes. Batwoman movie was on release. Yes. It was kind of a downer. Oh, we've now got them talking about um, Batwoman is like Bruce Wayne, but she's a rich lady living in Mexico City, but she chooses to use her money to excel at sports. Sport. In they the same were, yep, year as the Olympics in Mexico City. Yeah. I doubt that was a coincidence. So now we've got a diving sequence. There's a lot of uh, very beautifully shot underwater sequences filmed in Acapulco Bay. And 1966 on television is also the first year of Jacques Cousteau's Undersea Kingdom. Right. Which ran for 10 years. So this underwater photography was becoming kind of part of a popular television culture around the world. Yes. Because of Jacques Cousteau's aquatic documentaries. Now we've got some wrestling. This is the nearest uh, Batwoman has to a, a Batman costume. It's yes. a grey. She's got the the blue undies and the yellow belt. 
The Batwoman is a great woman. It'll be a pleasure to meet her. This is the cops talking about the fact they've recruited Batwoman to help solve this mystery of these wrestlers who've been killed. But I just wanted to kind of introduce all that information that one doesn't often hear talked about in the same breath yes. as this, to be clear, exploitation film about a woman wrestler where, I mean, her, as we're about to see, her Batwoman costume is uh, quite uncompromising. Yes. I mean... Uh, but it's interesting to think about this kind of bro- broader context of a commercially... Uh, quite sort of deliberately frivolous film. I was uh, having this discussion in my tutorial groups today. So, dear listeners, I also teach Mm. uh, film to uh, first-year students. And this week they were talking about... uh, We were talking about film industries around the world and they had to look at a Nollywood uh, this is films made in that, Nigeria. Yes, so an industry they're not familiar with, I'm not familiar with. Um, but we took them through readings based on academic reading, academic work on Nollywood. Uh, and one of these readings talked about how do you identify something as a Nollywood film, apart from the fact that it's made in Nigeria? What are the sort of uh, features? How can you look at something? made in Nigeria and tell that that's a Nollywood film. So some of these features were, you know, ropey production values, um, uh, films that have a social message, uh, and one of the main distinctions, of course, is the way Nollywood films are distributed Mm. through street markets or uh, lots of pirated versions of films. So it's a very sort of domestic unofficial routes of circulation and the reason I'm bringing that up is a lot of students had a trouble just sort of defining what an Hollywood film was so applying that how, how uh, is this an exploitation film well so we're watching uh, the cops and the mortician have made a forensic analysis of a Mexican wrestler who's drowned in Acapulco Bay apparently uh, but Batwoman is wearing not much. Uh, yes. Now, Maramonti is an actor who has impressed herself on the world's consciousness because she uh, was a very attractive, is a very attractive yes. actor, she's still alive, but has a very impressive physique. She has very large breasts. Uh, she's in uh, peak physical fitness making this film. And through most of it, she's wearing a very small blue satin bikini, a blue satin cowl and a cape. So it's a kind of overtly fetishised sexy, sexual outfit. Yes. But, I mean, is it exploitation? I'm not not sure, because Batman's kind of a sexy character anyway. I mean, but uh, when we think of exploitation films, we're not just looking at uh, sort of overtly... He's dropping a G.I. Joe into a tank with a Piranha? Oh, is it a goldfish? A goldfish, yes, with this little scientist on his on his boat. Sorry, I interrupted you. So we think about sort of the the features of what makes something an exploitation film. Again, you would flag up some of the sort of similar ideas about low budget production values, uh, 
plots being sort of very on the fly, very rough and ready aesthetic. I I don't think this is a this is an exploitation film. No. It's exploitation in the sense that yeah, there are some uh, well, there's an overtly fetishized version of Batman, and again, obviously, that has something to do with the fact that it's Batwoman. Uh, that's the element that's being exploited. You've got yes. an American commodity, which yes. is the Batman name, the yes. Batman trademark, yes. and they've just ripped it off. Yes. So it's exploitation in that respect, yes. I suppose. But in terms of sort of uh, aesthetically, in terms of production values, in terms of applaud, um, this has nothing in common with K. Gordon Murray, which is... Or Roger it's, Corman. Yeah, it's beautifully short, beautifully lit. Yeah, it's a very good There's a, aesthetic director, Annie yes. Cordona. And some, I mean, the costumes, I think, are very pretty. The sets are very yes. nice. Shall we skip forward to the, they've got a kind of Mexican gill man. Yes. So this is sort of quite a traditional monster movie trope, isn't it? The, yes. The rubber suit monster carrying. Carrying, yes, absolutely, yes. The prone female. I mean, if one, if one wanted to be critical, this is kind of where this movie starts to lose it. That actually, Batwoman should not really be a victim here. She should have some kind of... I mean, the film might surprise us yet. Very, very beautiful shots of yeah, the beach really and Acapulco now. She looks amazing. I mean, you know, if you want to be kidnapped by a freak in a rubber suit... Get kidnapped Mexico. in Mexico. That's what I always say. Oh, she's woken up now. Okay, Gilman has been shot, but not restrained. I mean, by any contemporary standards, it's not a great piece of monster makeup, but in the context of the dramaturgy, at the risk of sounding pretentious. It's it's quite beautiful actually, and all the all the kind of groovy evil science technology, and even that kind of weird trippy view screen thing he's yes. using to control the Gilman, it's very beautifully and artfully yes. done. It's just kind of lovely low rent James Bond technology, and I can't imagine they have much more of a budget than the Jerry Warren movie, but they've just done a better job well so Gilman's gone off okay so we're at the end Batwoman's back in her Batwoman costume with the cape and cowl and she's discovered that uh, her mate the cop's been kidnapped are we going to spoil this because I'm sure people will go and watch this yeah we shouldn't spoil it We'll leave it with the mystery of the kidnapping. Yes, but I hope we've uh, managed to convince some listeners to watch this film. Yeah, because it, it really is, is a, a quite a fun film. Yeah, it's an hour, hour and twelve. And if you're going to watch one of these movies, I'd watch this one. I mean, you might end up, you know, reading The Guardian or BuzzFeed on your tablet while you're watching it. It's kind of a watch it yes. out of the corner of one eye type of movie, to be fair. But I imagine for a, for a drive-in audience at or the time for Halloween night, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a fun movie. 
Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed watching these two movies with you, Shruti, as, as ever. As have I. What are we going to watch next time? Well, I thought that there was a sort of connection from millionaire or possibly billionaire playboys. Ooh. Uh, you know, with a lot of time on their hands. Sure. Driving around at night, you know, getting into all kinds of scrapes, which is very much kind of Batman territory, to uh, the Dudley Moore star Arthur. Oh. And. Interesting choice. Uh, there's a lot to say about Arthur because did you know, Shruti, that as well as the three Western Arthur movies, Arthur won and Arthur 2 On the Rocks with Dudley Moore and the Russell Brand remake there are also three Indian language Arthur movies I did not know this so I thought what we might do is a two part show where we watch the three western movies and then watch three eastern movies yes Um, but it takes us back into this whole kind of territory of what do privileged men do when they have time on their hands which is kind of is the kind of connecting theme but certainly between the kind of Batman mythos and Arthur in the in the case of Arthur we sort of get drunk and get up to high jinks well yes rather than fight crime well it's been terrific fun surety as ever and uh, let's do it again sure podcast is more music for films and you can find it on thebeekeepers.com or your podcasting application of choice